Many people know the story of Horatio Spafford. He wrote a very well-known hymn. He was a lawyer in Chicago back in the middle of the 19th century, and he had done pretty well for himself, but he invested a large portion of his wealth and capital in a part of Chicago for, for real estate purposes, the very part of Chicago that was destroyed in the great fire of Chicago. So he found himself having lost a great deal of money reflecting on his life as, as oftentimes God uses that sort of thing in our lives, doesn't he? Something big has happened to us. And he began, he was a believer, and he was a very ardent supporter of D.L. Moody, if you know who he is, an evangelist. But he began to reassess his life and say, what in the world should I, should I do? And he became convicted that he should move his family to the Holy Land and begin a mission to those who lived in Jerusalem. So he sent his wife and four daughters ahead of him, took them to New York, and they boarded a steamship, and in the middle of the Atlantic, it was struck by another iron ship, and his four daughters perished. And so his wife, when she arrived on the other shore, sent a a wire to say, saved alone. And so he made his way there, and on the way over, as he was sailing over, the captain called him to the bridge and said, according to the charts and according to the maps, this is where the ship sank. This is where your daughters perished. And he wrote these words. You may know them. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It's very interesting. He was able to, of course, get back with his wife. And they did end up going to the Holy Land and began a mission that actually survived into the time of uh, the First World War and was very important service to people in that time. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. This is the kind of peace that we see when a person can accept God's will in their life. Or to say it with another hymn writer, whate'er my God ordains is right, holy his will abideth. There's a peace that comes in accepting the will of God in your life. What I'd like to point out today is that that peace that we want in our life, all of our life, a great deal of disruption of that peace, sometimes it happens in tragedy, yes, but a lot of times it happens because our neighbors are irritating us. A lot of times it happens because our spouses are the problem in our life. Our boss is the problem. Our friends are the problem. Our children are the problem. Our parents are the problem. So in this series, in our Lenten time, I want to focus on healing relationships. I like the words of Ben Russell, our dear brother. Ben has grown in wisdom. And so I spoke with him a few weeks ago, and he was talking about his ministry in Florida. And he said, you know, a lot of times we want to fix people. We wish that we could fix this person in our life. We counsel someone and we want to fix their problem. 
And he said, that's the wrong metaphor. You fix a machine. You know, you get in there with the screwdriver, you put a new cog on a machine. But with a person, a person needs healing. I thought, that is a great word, brother. Thank you for sharing that. And then he went on to say something else, and I think this is especially poignant. He said, you know, I've come to see that certain people, and they're struggling with their long-term relationships and problems, that what I have to say to them is, it's like this. Your spouse, your parent, your child, your coworker, they have a disease, and the only remedy for the disease is that you give them a blood transfusion every week. That's the healing they need. Our healing of one another, our relational healing, is not something that we fix with the flip of a switch. It is not something that we get a turnkey solution to. It is not something that we do one thing. No, it's a healing process, and that healing is like giving a blood transfusion on a regular basis to this person. Do you have people in your life that you have to give that blood transfusion to? Or are there people in your life that need the blood transfusion, you just won't give it to them? Or are you the person that needs the blood transfusion? I think that's true of us. I like the words of a contemporary Christian musician named Bob Bennett. He wrote the song called Lord of the Past, and he said, Every harsh word spoken, every promise ever broken to me, total recall of data in the memory, Every tear that has washed my face, every moment of disgrace that I have known, every time I've ever felt alone, every moment of disgrace I have ever known. Do you have resident in your mind every moment of disgrace you've ever known? Can you recall instantly that feeling of shame or embarrassment or being put down or being bullied or being hurt? He says, the chorus of the song is, Lord, be the Lord of the past. We need Jesus to be the Lord of the past. That's the kind of healing that we need. Now, do you believe this healing is possible? Do you believe it's possible to actually see real healing, real change take place in brokenness? I believe it is. You first have to accept this and accept that Jesus can be the Lord of the past, indeed the Lord of the present and the Lord of the future. Now today I want to lay out for you kind of what we're going to do for the next few weeks in a short word and just talk about the spiritual discipline of healing relationships. Then I want to talk about the spiritual prerequisites and the sacrificial living that's needed. The theme of our study today is taken out of Romans chapter 12, and we'll look at that in a few moments, but verse 18 specifically. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. This is the command. Be at peace with all men. Now first, healing relationships is a spiritual discipline. In this season, we want to consider this. We want to understand that it's alienation, it's brokenness, it's schism, it's the tensions in relationships and conflicts that form the basis for almost every sin in our life. Think about it. What sin do you commit 
that doesn't relate to some level of alienation or brokenness with others. Very few, I would think. If you have some that are completely unrelated to any relationships you have, please share them with me. I can't think of many. I would like to understand them. You don't have to share them now. You don't have to blurt them out. (laughs) Just hold on and tell me later. But repentance, therefore, as a theme in this season, requires relational healing with God fundamentally and then with others, with other people. I want to address this. And my goal for this series, again, it only lasts for a couple of weeks, and we just lost a week last week due to our, our cancellation for the weather. My goal is that every one of you, every person here, every basically mature person, would understand the urgent need of this, would be able to really work through the process and know the process, I'm going to show you that, and then be a resource to others. Because what God has called us to do as as His people, giving us the gospel, giving us free grace and forgiveness, is for us to be a healing force in the world. Some people look at the church as a hospital for sinners. That's really right. There's something right about that. But certainly, you individually, if you say, well, you know, I feel like I'm doing really well. I've got good relationships in my life. I've worked through conflict. I'm doing well. I'm not sure this applies to me. Yes, it does. First of all, if you're at that state now where you don't have any outstanding conflicts, just wait. That's one thing. Second thing is, then great. If God has given you the ability to effectively work through conflicts and do so so you have peace, then you can be a great resource for other people. You can be a great peacemaker. Jesus calls his people to be at peace with God, to be at peace with others, and what else? To be peacemakers, right? To be able to do that, to be able to assist others. Now, you know how it goes. If you have a problem... Oftentimes, when you get other people involved, that's even a greater extension of the sin. Or if somebody comes to you and says, guess what happened to me, blah, 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 blah. That is not actually healing the conflict at all. That's actually exacerbating the conflict. That's making the conflict much more, much more prevalent. So again, we want to be a resource. So we're called then into this serious spiritual discipline. Now here, if you say, what's the personal side of the spiritual discipline? I would say it in the words of Paul in Acts 24, 16. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And really, there's nothing more fundamental than that in terms of our own walk with the Lord. To say, you know, I've got all this sin lingering and I've got all these problems, but you know what, I'm just going to shove that under the rug and go about my day. No, no, no. See, a Christian can't do that. I strive, in another translation, to keep a blameless conscience. Do you have a blameless conscience? Do you have a blameless conscience? That's the spiritual discipline at a personal level. So we want to do this in this season, to strive to keep our consciences clear before God and man and to facilitate healing relationships. Now secondly, and let's look at our text in Romans chapter 12, there's some spiritual prerequisites for this. If you are going to be a peacemaker, if you yourself are going to have peace with God and with others, there's some prerequisites. You don't just get this in some way. This is the real problem with modern day 
uh, media and the various self-help books. There's a lot of self-help literature out there that addresses some of these things. Everyone wants peace. Everyone wants a kind of peace that extends in all of their life. And it's painted into the corners of their very experience. And so plenty of people will offer you a solution. A lot of times it's, it's just techniques. Just the techniques of how to deal with difficult people. How to deal with dragon-like people in your life, for example. A lot of books on that. Or just how for you to withdraw in some ways. You know, the Buddhism literature that's out there a lot of it in the self-help world, is saying, well, you know, the problem, (laughs) the reason why you don't have peace is because you have all these attachments, you see. If you just didn't have so many attachments, then you wouldn't think so terrible about it when your wife or your husband does something or when someone does this against you. It's just a problem of attachments. If you just become more uh, disconnected in that sense, then you'll be more peaceful. But none of those techniques, I think, really do work. Because we are made to have a kind of God-shaped peace, to paraphrase St. Augustine. You know, we have a God-shaped vacuum in our life, I think Pascal said. It's, but, but that vacuum, that, that hole, the thing that God has to fill, it's, it's God filling it. It has the contours of the peace sign, if you will, <laughs> to give you a visual image. In other words, when God comes into our life, what he grants to us fundamentally is that peace now let's let me show you that first prerequisite to peace is alienation from God being addressed through Christ Romans 5 1 we heard part of this read earlier therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Don't you see, in order to have peace in a Christian sense, in the fullest sense, you must have peace with God. Not, nothing else can offer. No amount of self, no Oprah Winfrey show can give you this because you have to have it through the work of Jesus Christ alone. And you have to receive that by faith. You have to be right, declared right by faith. That is the most fundamental thing. Are you right with God? Let me just ask it to you at a very simple level. Are you right with God? You know, a few weeks ago, I had a real, real health scare. And I had that night where I was thinking, tomorrow I could die. Indeed, I could have died before that, and that's always true. But there was a very, very sanctifying sense of there is an imminent possibility here. And I had asked myself, am I right with God? And let me tell you, there is no way for you to be right with God except what Paul says right here. Having been justified by faith, that is declared right through all that Christ has done, and you have received that through the alone instrument of faith. You've trusted Christ. You may not have experienced anything like that, but all of us will. We all will. I just got a little taste of what the future holds. We all will come to places in our life where that it's that moment before death. In the traditional prayers of the church, which we used in our service on Ash Wednesday, there's that phrase, O oh Lord, show us mercy in the hour of our death. 
Let me explain something to you, very basic about life. There is an hour of death for every person. There's an hour of death. You may be 16 years old, and that is a foreign concept to you, and I understand. But know for sure there is an hour of death. Are you right with God? There is only one way to be right with the holy, just, magnificent judge of all the world, and that is through faith in Christ. That's the first prerequisite, obviously. But then there's something more. There's a commitment you have to make standing in Christ. Notice that wonderful language in, uh, in Romans 5, 2. Through him we have obtained our introduction in the grace in which we stand. See, it's not just about getting your salvation ticket punched so that you can say, I am saved. But there is a standing grace in your life. And a lot of the New Testament is about that. It's not about the moment of salvation. It's mostly about being a disciple standing in grace. And so it is after the wonderful exposition in Romans 1 through 8, especially in chapter 12, he unpacks it. What does it mean to stand in grace? Well, you know these words. Therefore, I exhort you, brethren, by the great mercy of God, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, set apart and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. And do not be conformed to this present age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you discern what the will of God is. And so the second prerequisite for being at peace is that you have committed yourself to live in the grace in which you stand, which in the words of Paul here in 12.1 is to present yourself, to yield yourself as a living sacrifice. There's a lot of beauty in the image of a living sacrifice. First of all, it really does equalize the playing field because if you see yourself as a sacrifice, you know, just, just imagine, just put yourself back in the days when people would go to the temple with their animals and the priest would come and they, the worshiper would lay his hand on the head of the little sheep or goat, whatever it was, small bull, bull josh. Remember bull josh from the graves farm? Lay their hand on the head of this small dog-sized animal and then the priest would slit the throat of it. What Paul is saying is you should be the person who sees yourself like that animal who's there and once you see yourself in that perspective, it really does kind of equalize your relationship to other people. It's very valuable to think through the imagery in that. But that's it. Offer yourself to God. Basically, here I am, Lord. That's what you're saying. Paul uses sacrificial imagery to talk about this. Now, let's look at thirdly and finally, what is this sacrificial living like? Well, in chapter 12... We move right through it, and let me just read a few of the verses as you heard the first two verses. Then, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to have sound judgment. We're members of one body, verse 4, verse 5. We, we are members of one body individually, members of one another. We have gifts given to us. And then he gets a series of injunctions to tell us how to live this way. He says, 
uh, verse 9, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, contribute to the needs of the saints. And in verses 14 and following, he kind of turns into this, the real issues of broken relationships, I think. He says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, be of the same mind toward one another, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly, do not be wise in your own estimation, never pay back evil for evil, respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Do you see? The pattern is, once you offer yourself, you recognize you're in a body, and then you recognize you have gifts, and then you're exhorted to live that way. You're exhorted to live very much as one who is a living sacrifice. And so, the first you know, word about that in verse 3 is, none of us should think that we are a superior hunk of sacrificial meat. Let's go back to that sacrificial image again. If you're there, lined up with all the other animals that are about to have their throat slit, is anyone, you know, is anyone doing a, a 4-H competition and putting a blue ribbon on any of those? No, they're all about to die. And that's the way he wants us to think of ourselves. We are going to die by living and by giving of ourselves in all of these ways. And then he details it out in terms of these relationships. So we are to be conformed to Christ's own image, who himself was a sacrifice. And then we are bought members of the body. That's the second thing, verse 4. Then thirdly, we are to live as reflectors of God's image in love. We love one another. Love requires a self-sacrificial response to wrongdoing. It takes the wrong and gives back to God. That, I think, is hard for us. You know, how, how is it that we can be wronged and then not retaliate? You know, I mean, you have this, don't you? When someone does something wrong to you, you want to retaliate? Am I alone in this? Or is, is most people have that? Yeah, yes, but he's saying here, no, don't do that. Don't give out evil for evil. That's a hard one. And you say, well, of course, I'm not going to you know, go out and kill anyone. But, you know, the impulse to kill someone. You might think, here's a person who is a murderer. You know, every person, there's a, a, a British uh, drama series that kind of explores this. Every person, given the right circumstances, could be a murderer. <laughs> you know, if you look inside your own heart and you don't see that sometimes you hate other people, then you are not looking very carefully. Every instance of retaliation is just that. That's what it is. We, we, we have to see that in ourselves. You know, think about it if, you know, back when you were, if you were an adult, think about when you were in school. Did anybody ever pick on you? Or were you ever the, the person who received, you know, scorn or somebody laughed at you? Or were you the person doing the scorning? Were you the person picking on the, the person? Now that, just think about that, when you did that. If you can think of a time when you were that person, that, that very same evil desire that Paul talks about here in terms of vengeance and getting others, getting back to others, that, that is just the same thing that motivates all atrocities. That's it. So he says, let God be God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. In the meantime, how can then we 
do this, well, overcome evil with good. That's what he says. And this is how we pursue peace with others. It is living that way. Now, I said that I want to really make clear the steps of this process of healing. And so I want to finish with this. And I have it in your notes there, so please take note to look at it. We are exhorted then to live out the standing we have in Christ, Romans 5.1, with the body, with others, and to do so by loving and not trying to get back with others. That is the foundation. And I've tried to point out that there are six basic principles of healing relationships. This, the first one is just this command in, in Romans 12.18. It's also in Hebrews 12 to pursue peace. To pursue peace rather than your own vengeance, or in Hebrews, it is pursue peace and not let a root of bitterness grow up. There is only one option here. You you either pursue peace and you do it the way God says it, or you become a person who takes unto themselves retaliation and or a person who has a root of bitterness growing up in their life. That's it. You resolve to either do what the Lord says here because of Christ's work in your life, or you rather end up being a bitter, retaliatory person. So the first principle is pursue peace. And I I arranged this a few months ago to spell out the word people, and we'll go through this and see this each week. But pursue peace, examine yourself, offenses define, define offenses, process offenses, listen in confrontation, and exercise a renewed mind. You will see this many times And I'm going to quiz personally every person in this church so that they know this by the end of this time. So I want you to know it. But the first point is just this, that you must, as a Christian, saved by the grace of God, resolve to pursue peace eagerly with conviction. Be obedient to God's will in pursuing peace through forgiving others since Christ has forgiven you. Be resolved that practicing this approach to biblical reconciliation definitely has eternal consequences. Jesus taught that there's no more foundational pursuit than peace through personal reconciliation. That is because you are forgiven, which we'll say in a few moments in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Because we are forgiven, we have the power, we have the resources to forgive others and not retaliate and not let a root of bitterness grow up in our life. That story about Horatio Spafford, who was able to have peace in the midst of tragedy, went on to have several more children, and then served the Lord in the context of Jerusalem. Elizabeth Elliot, who was a missionary's wife, a martyr missionary, in the 1990s she had a newsletter and she wrote and said she had had lunch with one of Horatio Spafford's daughters. She was very old at this point, in her 90s. And she asked more about this story. And God, in His marvelous ways, even in that tragedy, preserved them because at the last minute, Spafford changed the room that his, that his family was going to be in and moved it from the front of the boat to the back of the boat or something like that. And it was just that place where the first room was that the other ship hit. They would have all died, in other words, had that change not happened. So this little mercy where God preserved his wife even though their daughters died. 
And so this, you know, elderly daughter of Horatio Spafford shared this with her and then shared about this place where the captain had said, this is where it happened. This is where your family died. And Elizabeth Elliot says in the newsletter, she says, this hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, has been of great comfort to countless thousands of people including five widows in Ecuador in a memorial service in 1956. And you know the story. Her husband, several others, went in to try to reach an unreached people group, and the Indians that they were trying to reach killed them and left them laying face down with spears in their back in one of the streams. And these widows including Elizabeth Elliot, you know, had to remake their life. Now, you would think that would be a great cause for retaliation. You would think those widows, like so many today, seeing martyrs of ISIS, would say, Newcomb! But you know what happened. These amazing women forgave these ignorant, superstitious natives. And then she went back. And now they believe in Jesus. She forgave them and lived out that forgiveness by pursuing reconciliation and teaching them the gospel. And to this day, those people and their children believe in Christ and have turned from their darkened minds to Jesus and to the light of forgiveness. That is truly, it is well with my soul. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you now for your word, and we pray that as we are called on the journey in this season to repent, to be disciplined, that you would help us have the discipline of a clean conscience that you would help us have the discipline of pursuing peace with others, of extending the forgiveness to others. We have not been the wives of martyrs. We have not experienced this level of actions of violence, and yet we know in our own hearts that we have a hard time forgiving the most petty things. Grant to us a vision of your salvation that's so rich that we may pursue peace with others, and apply your gospel in the standing of grace. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.